Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Tracy Stone, principal of Tracy A. Stone Architect and founder of the Elysian Valley Arts Collective, a 501c3 nonprofit which supports the arts and artists in the community and also manages the biennial Frogtown Art Walk. Tracy spent 10 years as a member of the Angelino Heights Historic Preservation Overlay Zone Board, and she has taught at Woodbury University, Art Center College of Design, and USC. What strikes me the most about Tracy is her dedication to being an active architect participant in her community, and the way she clearly cares about the people around her, whether these are her clients, neighbors, or employees. Joining us is designer Abby Naylor, who nominated Tracy for this interview. As Tracy's employee, Abby provides insight into the deep commitment and care that Tracy has toward mentoring her employees. Without further ado, here's our conversation recorded virtually earlier this month. So Tracy, I I can't resist starting off this way because... I know you're from Hawaii and <laughs> I'm from Hawaii. I just, you know, we have such similar backgrounds. We both jumped from there to the East Coast to an Ivy League school, found architecture, and then kind of made our way west. Can you talk about that um, experience and how all these places have shaped you? Sure. I know. I, I thought that was such an unusual aspect that we shared that past Uh I think I'm one of only two architects in my graduating class that I'm aware of. So it wasn't a huge kind of direction, I think, for a lot of people at that time. And I did indeed follow that trajectory. I made my way east, landed at Cornell, where I kept thinking I wanted to go into architecture, but I was somehow scared to actually make that commitment. I got to Cornell and thought about transferring into the architecture program, but um, my advisors suggested that that would be a kind of a foolish use of my time. I would end up with something like eight years of undergraduate at that point. So we decided that I should just get a degree, um, and I decided to get a degree in art history, and then um, make my way into architecture at the graduate school level which I did, um, and uh, I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. And upon graduating, I had to make that decision about where do you go? And I thought about going back to Hawaii, of course. Family was still there, made sense. And I went back and interviewed and got some really generous job offers that I think it was $4.50 or $5 an hour. With my graduate <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, indeed, you know, they had that luxury of paying very little because there was a great demand for people to live in Hawaii. And uh, there's an architecture school right there at the University of Hawaii. And so um, I thought, well, why do I want to make pennies working for a firm I don't really admire or I'm interested in just to be here. So I quickly raised my sights and um, started looking around and was fortunate enough to land my first job with Ray Cappy working here in Los Angeles. And I always intended that to be a relatively short uh, stay here in Los Angeles. I thought, well, (laughs) you know, I'll just 
put in a few years here and and uh, and then make my way probably at that time I thought back to Hawaii and um, 30 some odd years later I'm still here in Los Angeles (laughs) 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 Uh, but happy to be here I think you know I periodically I I don't know if it happens to you but I, I think is now the time? Should I try to go? Should I um, make the leap? And um, it's just never seemed like the right thing to do. I think I've ended up enjoying my visits back to Hawaii and to seeing family, but never really feeling that the strong urge to make the move. It would be difficult for sure. I mean, that it's so funny because that was my plan too. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to spend a few years in LA and then I'll, <laughs> I'll go home because that was originally my plan. And, you know, I'm still here. <laughs> I think that's what we all say. We're like, yeah, I live for a little bit and then <laughs> you're here. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, it, it, especially if you decide to go into practice for yourself. You quickly realize that it's a very... Um, a relationship dependent move and it quickly becomes apparent that the contacts that you have are so critical um, to both getting clients and being able to work effectively that the idea of uprooting and landing in a new location and trying to convince people out of the blue to hire (laughs) you is a a harder prospect than than I realized. Yeah I mean I don't doubt that you could do it. But, but I know, I know what you mean. (laughs) I I think you could, it would be easy, relatively easy to, to move and work for someone. I think you can always go someplace and get a job. But um, I decided after a few years, I wasn't sure I'd be a good employee any longer. And I (laughs) wanted to continue to be in business for myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the other thing I was going to say is we also have a very similar experience of, you know, working for like one other place for a relatively short amount of time before starting a practice. And you've been in business now for over 25 years. I think We're, we just hit 30 years. This 30 year. years. <laughs> it's our anniversary. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I don't know where the time went, but it actually is sort of when you look back and think, how did this become 30 years? Yeah, so I know, so Abby, you've been there since 2018, so that's like three years at this point. Oh, yeah, I think it's two and a half now. Okay. Officially, I saw on my LinkedIn, yeah. (laughs) I mean, can you you both kind of talk about... the experience of designing your own practice, the, the way that you approach architecture and business, because I think a lot of the things that I see about the way that you're running your practice really kind of resonates with how I feel as well. So I, I'd be curious to hear you talk about that. Well, <laughs> do, do you want to go first, Abby? Do you, is there anything you want to say about what you see from that? From um, the inside looking? Well, I know... I feel like Tracy, when I first immediately interviewed and started working, she very much is like values us as employees. And you can tell that she cares um, about us, about clients. And that was probably one of my favorite things. But in terms of like running the firm and how we're approaching it, I f- we talk about this once a week, maybe, on how we want to approach marketing. How do we want to do this? What? How do we want to show ourselves? And 
a big one I feel like recently has been our marketing and how do we build that relationship with clients and um, that trust, I guess, that you get through social media. But I, I don't know. There's it's there's so much to it. <laughs> Clearly, you can see it's it's a never ending process. We're always learning. So there's always got to be better ways to do it. And I know exactly Audrey, what you mean about feeling sort of siloed and wondering how do other people approach it and is there another way to do it? Um, and for me, it's been a just a constant path of growing and learning and changing and hopefully improving on all of those levels. Your website is the most client-friendly website I've come across for architects. And so that was one of the things that really resonated with me when I looked at it was just like that you're approaching it from a very, um, very understanding point of view of like a what it is to be a first time client. So I, I thought that was really cool and unusual. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> you know, it, it, I've always been very conscious that architecture is a service profession. It, it can be a very egocentric profession as well. But um, I've never found myself on that side of it. I always have seen the work that we do in service of solving our clients' problems and in helping them to realize their vision. And it seemed to me very early on that the best projects grow out of a really strong collaboration between client and architect. And when I was working for Ray, he I had the the great joy of working for Ray Cappy and uh, of working on one particular house from the start to the finish over my five years with him. And uh, I stayed friendly and friends with the owner of the house. And so I get to see her living in it throughout the years. And I've always loved the way that their two sensibilities merged and melded. And she's an amazing client and an amazing steward for this house, the Keeler residence. And I think that house is so much stronger for that um, relationship. And so it's always my goal to educate the clients and to create a partnership with them so that they push the architect and the architect pushes the client and you end up with something better than you would have if the architect just imposed something on them <laughs> or if the client drives everything and pushes <laughs> you in the direction you don't want. So, so I'm happy to hear that you think the website speaks maybe to that goal. It's actually funny because I think me and Mackenzie, who also works for Tracy, we redid the website last year. And when I first started, one of the biggest like hurdles coming from like an interior design background was like the architect jargon. Like I would say they speak a different language like every other day. <laughs> so I think I did a lot of the wording on the website. I'm like, no, like we need to make this so the person like we do a lot of residential work like that person who owns the house who's never done architecture a day in their life could understand it and communicate with us a little bit better and i think that's a big reason why yes. it is the way it is that's amazing can you talk a little bit more about um your experience coming from interiors working with tracy and like um it sounds like you've already within two and a half years made a pretty large <laughs> impact <laughs> yeah, I, I, I inserted myself. <laughs> um, well, I'm trying to think. When I 
because this was my first like um, job really in the industry. Um, I did interior design degree and it was loosely architecture based. Um, all of my professors were architects and um, we would do f like full building renovations, you know, fake ones for projects. And then um, coming in, I think just like Los Angeles in general was just like the biggest hurdle of building codes and trying to learn all of that. And I think when I first started, we were doing a lot of uh, small lot subdivisions, which required a whole other set of codes. I don't even know, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was just starting over. I don't know. I definitely, Mackenzie and Tracy have helped me a ton of just like getting me from one point to the other. At one point I thought I would go back to grad school, but they kind of convinced me, no, just stay and do your work. And if you want to go for licensure in a couple of years, you can. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. So that's where we're at now. <laughs> oh, you mean like you would go for licensure through the um, apprentice path? Yes. Yeah. So I think technically I have one more year of work and then I could technically start taking tests. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Or some or like a year and a half, something like that. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> that's really rare to come across someone going that route. That's great. Yeah, well, that's what McKinsey did in the office, I believe. So she was just like, no, just you can make money here and not pay for school if you want. It's like you're already <laughs> in. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I guess I did the hard part. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Can you talk about that some more? So Mackenzie is another employee of yours, Tracy, who it sounds like basically went to architecture school at Tracy Stone Architects. Yeah, that's basically what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it, it, their programs, I think, do count as a, they, you get a bachelor in art that yeah. actually does give you some credit. It's not a straight apprentice program as if you didn't have Correct. a related degree. Um, but, but yes, then other than that, they, they have stuck with me <laughs> long enough. To, Mackenzie was licensed, I think two years ago now. Yeah. So it is possible. Yes. That's great. How did you know to hire Abby and Mackenzie? And was it important to you when you hired them that eventually they would become licensed or was it important to them? Like, I want to hear more about that relationship. <laughs> well, I'm sure Abby can speak a little bit more to that, but in short, no, I didn't know that either of them would become licensed. And I was very surprised actually that Abby <laughs> has decided that she apparently likes architecture enough to maybe pursue this. Um, she, when she first came to me, she was a little more oriented towards marketing. And at the time I thought we needed that. And so uh, it was a good fit. And I'm delighted, however, that she has also <laughs> uh, grabbed the challenge of the architecture side of it and she's grown by leaps and bounds. So um, she's a multi-talented member of the team at this point, uh, as is M Mackenzie. And Mackenzie, oh, yeah. <laughs> Mackenzie was my student at, at Woodbury University in the interior architecture program. And so I knew her for the talented and intelligent person that she is. And when she needed a job, I fortunately had room and was happy to take her on. But she also, I think, wasn't entirely clear that she was going to be licensed at the beginning. 
Yeah, because she had a interior architecture degree. So we both kind of came from like this half background of not being in it all the way, I guess. And she got licensed as an interior designer first, I believe. She did. Yeah. Yes. Would you say that interiors is a important part of your um, practice because you're, you know, in residential and commercial projects? We're trying to push it more. <laughs> yeah. I have never been attracted to the white drywall interior, um, just kind of papering the whole inside of a space with drywall, if I can help it. I am much more interested in a rich material palette. And as such, I'm very interested in controlling where possible the interior surfaces and the cabinetry and those elements. I'm not in the slightest bit interested in specking a sofa or a, <laughs> a desk lamp, but I am very interested in the things that are that adhere to the surface of a building. So we have been doing a lot of work for developers over the past five, six years. And as such, we don't often have the opportunity to influence those surfaces. But I really love that about the more custom residential work and the commercial work when we get it. So yes, we are trying to push that more and to sell our services in that respect where we can. Yeah. Nice. So you'd mentioned that you are working a lot with developers and, you know, custom single family clients. How have you seen that change over your um, years of practice? Because uh, I guess there's always been a housing shortage in Los Angeles, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> but um, I just think it's so expensive to build now that, um, you know, a lot of times the bigger projects are mostly done by developers. Can you talk a little bit about like what it's like working on those projects and um, any of the challenges or really great things about those kinds of projects? Sure. Uh, I will say working for developers has given me a lot of sympathy for them and a lot of frustration, I would say, or desire to educate when I hear people slamming developers for coming in and just trying to make a fortune off their neighborhood and, you know, they're the bad guys and seeing firsthand just how incredibly difficult it is to get a multifamily residential project built through the city and through all of the regulations. Um, I have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> um, having said that, I am incredibly grateful uh, for getting the work with the developers that we've had over the past few years. It has helped us through recessions and provided a nice steady source of income. And I think there are a lot of benefits to working with developers. They usually are very quick decision makers. They can have some very efficient processes that are nice to learn from. Uh, if they are also builders, they're incredibly great to learn from because they have figured out, in many cases, certain ways of doing things that are better than others. And that's always a good thing to know. The flip side of that is that they have to build fast and they don't often have the time or the budget to include us in construction administration. So sometimes it's a surprise to see how the projects turn out. And I'm incredibly 
impressed by architects who can work with developers and get something really unique and detail-oriented built. I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I am very grateful that we've had the opportunity that we've had to work with developers and to see this side of things. Um, you know, part of our work is to often go and present these projects to neighborhoods. And generally speaking, the neighborhoods are not happy to have us there and not happy to hear about the projects. And in fact, are furious at what's going on, understandably. So um, I think, you know, the rate of change in Los Angeles can be pretty stressful. And it's always hard to see a neighborhood get more dense to see buildings go taller than you thought was possible, to look at having more traffic and all of the things that come with it. And at some point, I must admit, I had to make my peace with this because I do think it is also important that we continue to build housing in Los Angeles. And it's um, kind of fascinating to see the movement growing across the country to abolish single family home zoning entirely. And I am not sure what I think about that completely. But I do love the moves that the city and the state have made towards the ADU ordinance, for example, and allowing more density to be tucked into our neighborhoods. And uh, I remain hopeful and optimistic that we're going to figure out in Los Angeles how to get the mix of housing and transportation and services and all of the things we need to continue to make this a functional city as well as a <laughs> one that's starting to provide more housing. It seems like you've been on all sides of that issue because you were on the HPOZ for Angelino Heights. So you've been on that side. You're the architect, uh, you know, working for single family clients and developers. Um, you also have a nonprofit um, the Legion Valley Arts Collective. On the one hand, you're part of two very distinct, sort of very locally focused communities. And so I'm sure you know people who fall on every side of this issue, right? <laughs> I do, including me. <laughs> um, so yes, I I did spend 10 years on the Angelino Heights uh, HPOZ board. And it was a fascinating time. I would strongly encourage every architect to get involved at some in some way with your community, with your locality, because it's a terrific way to broaden your understanding, as you mentioned, of how these things work, to broaden your contacts and your knowledge. Um, one of the things that I learned the most from my work with the HPOZ was that it was our job, I felt, to help every applicant get their project to a place where we could say, yes, we would approve it and they would be happy as well. I don't always find that in many community groups that I go to. I think in many cases, they come at it from a perspective of, we have to stop it. That the, you know, the default... <laughs> <laughs> position is stop this. And uh, and I don't think that's fair to applicants or the board or their communities. Um, well, I understand it. I mean, I certainly um, 
you know, have found my myself surprised or dismayed at times and changes that are happening in my own neighborhood. But at the same time, I think it's important to be part of the solution as opposed to just trying to be a roadblock. So I, I generally try to use that same thought process when I'm the applicant as well and hope that we can find a way, I can find a way through in working with whatever board it is or, or group where we can all come to a resolution and be happy or at least content or, or understanding of the, the, the solution. But it's it can be really, really difficult. I was thinking a lot recently about community and, and um, how architects get involved or can get involved. And I was remembering my early days in Los Angeles and I got involved with a early get out the vote campaign for a political candidate. And it was in a new neighborhood I just moved to. And I was in Los Angeles, which was this big, scary city. And up until that point, I would come home every day and kind of slam my door and, you know, huddle in my apartment. And I was a little bit scared of the neighborhood surrounding <laughs> me. And um, in doing this get out the vote campaign, I had to walk my precinct and I had to try to speak to every person in the precinct and ask them, you know, who they're going to vote for and encourage them to vote and give them information. And the main time that I would do this is when I got home from work. And so it was generally in dusk, a time when normally I would have not considered getting out and about. And it absolutely changed my relationship to the city and to my neighborhood and made me feel so comfortable in it and so confident. And suddenly I, I saw people, I could say hi to them. I recognized them. They recognized me. And it became a known quantity, a known city. It became my neighborhood as opposed to just this place where I lived and, you know, I had my apartment. Uh, and I think that experience um, was huge for me. And it translated into then when I bought my first house, I volunteered for the HPOZ board. And again, it was uh, a game changer because suddenly, you know, I knew everyone in the neighborhood and um, I felt very rooted in the neighborhood and, and, um, and a very much committed to the neighborhood and to making it a better place. And I think as architects, we have a skill set that is very useful and is something that we should share helping to solve problems, helping our neighborhood through change. It has been something that has driven my career and my extracurricular life. <laughs> the first house you bought, was that the one in Angelino Heights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I purchased it with two friends. Um, and uh, we figured that was the only way we were going to get into the housing market on an architect's salary. And so we, and because we were three co-equal friends, the kind of typical newer house model with a master bedroom suite and two bedrooms didn't work for us. And we found that these big old houses, the pre-master suite houses worked much better for us. And so we landed in Angelina Heights. Wow. That's pretty unique. Um, <laughs> do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Because I think people looking for housing now... Um, it's so hard to get into the market. That could be a viable way that people might get in. Yeah, it was terrific. It I I can't speak highly enough of it, but I think you you know of course it depends on who you do it with. But uh, the two friends that I purchased the house with um, were two friends from architecture school who had also landed in LA. One of which was my 
roommate at the time. And the other one was a friend. And it was a great way to get in. We were able to to buy a big house, actually. It was bigger than my current warehouse <laughs> that I live in mm-hmm. uh, and had uh, four large bedrooms and one bathroom. And was, you know, hadn't been touched for years. And so we were able to use our skill and knowledge to fix the house up. And then slowly uh, one one friend uh, wanted to be bought out. So two of us bought her out before we ended up uh, ultimately selling it. And that provided the nest egg that I needed to buy my next place. And you're able to uh, participate in this incredible real estate boom in Los Angeles. So yes, I would recommend it to anyone who has uh some friends you trust (laughs) exactly friends you trust which is important yeah but it it was a a good model for us after the angelina heights house did you move to frogtown after that one or was there a house in between there when we decided to sell the house we sold because my other roommate at the time had moved to Denver and he was ready to sell. And I thought, oh my God, where are we going to go? And at that point I had my business in the house and we were living there. And I thought, everything is so expensive. Um, What am I going to do? And I had, two things had coalesced for me. I heard a presentation by the planning department about Elysian Valley and that they were considering changing the zoning to create an arts district in Elysian Valley. And um, that kind of stuck in my head. I thought that was a really interesting idea. And then the LA Times used to have a real estate section that was not just houses, but there was a house or there was a building, a commercial building in, I think it was Watts that um, was selling, I don't know, it was 4,000 square feet or something. And it was selling for pennies of what a house was selling for. And it was, I, I thought, wait, that's that's kind of interesting. And the city had just passed the artist in residence ordinance, which would allow people to occupy commercial buildings. And so I, it was really like a one, two, three, the, two weeks later, the place we're at right now was in the LA times. And uh, I came to see it and it was perfect. It was one of those things. It was two warehouses on a, on a lot with a space in between that I thought we could use as a courtyard. And I, it was just something you could immediately see this will work. And I went down to the city and said, what would you think if we were to apply for an artist in residence variance? And they threw the application at me and said, please, this is exactly what we want. Do it. And um, so uh, we did it. And as it turns out, the neighborhood decided they didn't want the arts district. And so the planning change didn't happen formally, but unofficially, you know, there were a lot of artists actually already living in the warehouses. And then we moved in and then we suggested to the neighborhood that maybe we should have an art walk. And now we have an arts district (laughs) to a certain degree. (laughs) I just always found it really interesting how the art walk has grown over the years just from hearing how it started with just like a couple artists and now what 6,000 people came in 2018 or something to tiny frog town I yeah it's just cool <laughs> the frog town art walk was um started in my office 
because I uh, decided that we should have an office warming party after we moved in. And I reached out to a friend of mine who runs a gallery and asked her if she would help me organize it. And she said, well, frankly, that doesn't sound very interesting. Who wants to go to an architect's office? And she said, but you have really cool neighbors. Why don't you see if any of them want to open up and join in and have kind of a block party or an art walk? And I thought, you know, that's true. We do have cool neighbors. So I reached out to them and uh, we got together as a group in our courtyard and talked about what we could do. And everyone was on board. And there was a small group of, I don't know, about seven or eight business owners, uh, artists. And we threw open our doors one really cold November night in 2006. And about 200 people came down and the streets were dark and it was very much of an adventure. So originally it was just about the artists and the artisans. And after a few years, we realized that it really could be much more of a community festival and it should be more of a community festival and um, that it was something that we wanted to definitely invite the neighbors in for because there had been historically um, little to no contact between the artists and the residents in Elysian Valley and a lot of skepticism about what was going on in these warehouses. Over the years, it's just kind of grown somewhat organically, but somewhat specifically, intentionally, uh, to be something that was family-friendly, that has a focus, an educational focus on the LA River, and uh, that provides this community a chance to, to get out and see each other and, and investigate what's going on in these little manufacturing buildings that are often now turned over into service industry buildings. And it has been something that I, I think has, uh, you know, become somewhat, I think, loved by the community, although there are some people who are concerned about it as well. But on the whole, I think it's been fairly positive. And yes, as Abby mentioned this past year, we was an art walk year, 2020. We went biennial quite a few years ago. And at first we thought, well, just obviously cancel it. No, no one's going to come down here in the middle of COVID and go see artists. And, uh, and then we realized that we had an opportunity to do something online. And I will say that we bit off, I think personally, one of the more incredibly uh, ambitious events that I've personally ever heard of. But fortunately, we have this amazing event producer, Micheline Shuri. So we ran three full days of programming. I think that it managed to reflect the usual kind of surprise and delight of the art walk where you just never know what's coming up next. And the range of, of things that we offered were um, pretty extraordinary uh, from music and poetry to interviews with the puppeteer who grew up with Bob Barker and marionette theater and presentation by first impressions dance company of the young kids who learned to do hip hop and cheerleading at, I don't know, it's just a, a really <laughs> fun variety of a range of activities and Interestingly, because it was now virtual, it's available. And now you can go back through our videos on YouTube to uh, seeing some of these events for yourself and getting a sense of what the neighborhood's about and what happens here. Sadly, many of the original artists have been priced out now by the increasing property values and rents down here. So as happens often. It's crazy. We keep sending each other like listings on Zillow of houses that are going up around Elysian Valley. And some of them are a million dollars. And Tracy's always like, this is so new. This used to not be like this. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's been an interesting time and an interesting place. And I think often 
arts are seen as harbinger of gentrification and change. But I think in this particular case, um, the artists were actually the losers because uh, I think that the the interest and the change in this area was driven a lot more by the river revitalization plans than by the, the artists that were living here. So unfortunately, yeah, the artists have lost out and we have lost many as a result of it. Where are they going? Do you know? Wherever they can find space. Uh, some of them have left the city. Some of them have moved east and across the river. I don't know, a variety of places. South, actually, to kind of industry, city of industry, and various places. That's really interesting. Because, I mean, there is so much focus on the LA River revitalization. Yeah, which is, a you know, all in all, hopefully a, a good thing. Um, actually, when we first moved here, we had brought with us a chest, which... Um, we, after we got here, we decided we didn't need it. And so I wanted to get rid of it. And our neighbor said to us, so do you want me to do something with this? And I said, well, sh- well I don't know. What do you have in mind? He says, oh, I'll just take it down and push it in the river. And I said, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? He said, oh, that's what we do with our trash down here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I thought, no, don't put it in the river. You know, I don't know if, if, if that was a, a typical response, if, um, but there was a lot of pollutants and trash and things going into the river. So I, I think that the revitalization and the restoration of the habitat will be a good thing for the city um, and for the river and the health of the river and the ecosystem. Yeah. <laughs> and a good thing for this neighborhood, because it, it really is, it's the, the primary open space for Elysian Valley, Frogtown, and we don't really have sidewalks that run the north-south length. And so a lot of people use the river to move. And it's a good thing. It's a, it's a nice amenity. And it's something that we should get comfortable with sharing. I, I think, <clears throat> unfortunately, there's also the sense that, well, this was kind of a hidden little little neighborhood and a hidden little gem. And, and we, we really don't want all these outsiders coming in and using the river. But I think it's kind of, it goes along with, you know, the same thing as when you live along the beach. Uh, you get to share that amenity but as in return it is a public space and it we need to all learn to share it with everyone yeah I will say having worked for Tracy and also I came to LA and had no idea what Elysian Valley was or even like familiar with the east side of Los Angeles and meeting all these people they have such an ownership of like Frogtown and this river and like they love it. And now, like, even now, I'm like, I'm so protective of it. And I'm like, I love Frogtown. I never shut up about it. <laughs> so does, like, everyone else. And I would just think it's, like, such a special place because I don't see that in other parts of L.A., really. I don't know. It's just really, really interesting neighborhood. It is. It's a, it's a really lovely neighborhood that's a, a very cohesive, to a certain degree, community. It, talk about community. It's a very strong um and there is a strong sense of ownership, and I love that about it as well. Yeah, I feel like all of the business owners and everybody, too, are, like, friends and take care of each other. And you walk around, and I say hi to everybody. <laughs> it feels very small compared to being in such a big city, which is nice. Definitely one of my favorite things. Yeah, it seems like all of us being stuck at home have made us more appreciative of our, our smaller community um, or our, our neighbors. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
that's funny you say that. I feel like I've befriended all of my neighbors where I live in my apartment. And I think Mackenzie said a similar thing. So, you know, you're so involved in the community. You're running your own practice. You're teaching. Uh, I mean, you're you're doing all of these things, maybe at different times, but still like, and within the office too, I'd be curious to hear about this. Like, how do you deal with burnout and staying motivated? Because I think this is an industry where there is a lot of burnout. And I am the first one to say, like, I've struggled with that off and on. So I'm curious to hear, like, how that factors into your your lifestyle. You know, I, that's an interesting question. I must admit, I don't know that I have felt burnout in quite that way. But I think that maybe having the different, the variety that's what oh, I was no, gonna say. Things that you're working on means you're you're always working on something new, or or there's there's so many different things. I mean, I, I I don't know that I would think of it as burnout. There have been times, certainly, where I have been very stressed over it. If when they all come to a head, and maybe that's the term. Maybe that's what you're referring to as burnout. Um, but I I try very hard to keep a realistic schedule and to take time for time off and travel. <laughs> that's, a, that's important for me. Uh, so I don't, I try hard not to ever work late or, you know, work on weekends. I, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I try to make sure that Everyone who works for me doesn't have to work on the weekends, but it does mean that I do sometimes. Uh, but generally, they're things I want to do. So uh, I, I will say that I rely on my staff heavily. <laughs> and uh, I have a wonderful group of employees right now working for me, and they I couldn't, I couldn't function without them, uh, <laughs> frankly, which is an interesting point. You know, when you start off as a sole practitioner and you're doing everything yourself, you can't imagine at some point delegating it. It seems like, but I'm the one who knows how to do this. I'm the designer. I'm the this. I'm the that. And it's been a long, slow process of me learning to offload and delegate and and let other people pick up certain things. It can be scary when then you reach a point where you realize, uh-oh, I don't even know how to run the printer. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> come and help me. <laughs> or I don't know any longer right now in COVID how you're submitting plans to BOE. Um because I'm not the one doing it on the day-to-day basis where I used yeah. to do it all. And so there's a certain amount of, uh, you have to learn to be comfortable with letting that go, loosening the, the reins a little bit, the grip on the reins, and then um, accepting the fact that you're not the sole source of all knowledge and um, that that's okay. Uh, I'm not sure that answered your question about burnout, but. Well, uh, no, I mean, it sounds like it's not an issue then. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, no, not quite in that way. Um, I mean, there are certainly moments of frustration, moments yeah. where I think, uh, okay, how do I do this better? This is not going the way I want it to go. Um, I've definitely had those moments throughout my career. And I did have one notable moment, I guess, where I thought, well, maybe I just want to be a landscape architect. That seems so much nicer. Nobody gets all <laughs> upset if the, if the tree is a little bit smaller than you expected or <laughs> something. But uh, all in all, I've been extremely happy with my career choice. I feel like you're 
pretty balanced too with, okay, we need to take some time off. I'm going to go camping next week. And if we ever need time off, there's never a question about it, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Tracy just does it all. (laughs) I don't know, but we definitely do. (laughs) I feel like we're always scheduling things for her and we're just like, Hey, this is free on your calendar. Is that okay? And she is like, no idea. (laughs) She's just like, what am I doing today? And we're like this here, we printed it. Go. (laughs) And we just figure it out. (laughs) Like I said, I couldn't do it without my staff. Um, but what you did say about having variety of projects and things, I think definitely helps as well. Um, like if I was doing drafting on a small lot subdivision, that's all I did 40 hours a week, every day, I would get really burnt out. But sometimes, um, working in the small firm, we get to do a little bit of everything. So we all work on renders. We all work on small projects, big projects, going downtown, we help with the nonprofit sometimes. So it's, I don't know, balanced, I guess. And Tracy will sometimes be like, are you burnt out on, she'll ask us if we're done, we're bored of this. And is there something else we'd rather work on for the day? And that's like totally cool. So I recommend that in any other offices that are listening. (laughs) (laughs) I do try to pay attention to a certain degree to what everyone is working on and make sure that they have a variety of tasks and job types and, you know, I guess just things to keep them fresh and interested. I feel like you're good at um, recognizing everybody's strengths and what we're most interested in as well. Like I feel like I come from a strong art marketing background and she's like, please do our social media and like, let's me do a lot of the renders and things and um, Mackenzie for instance she like saw the technical work and that's where she pushes her and it kind of it works <laughs> it definitely works and we should mention Annette as well who's another yes she, uh, yeah <laughs> she also loves a lot of the technical aspects but she also I feel like is our tile expert and loves like bathrooms and kitchen design <laughs> So, yeah, I feel like we all kind of complete a little piece in this small firm. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. So does it does that mean that, like, each person has a hand on each project? Technically speaking, I like a project to be assigned to a person. Yeah. But it doesn't always work out. Uh, we do have a couple projects that bounce from desk to desk just because of timing issues. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, there is a person assigned to every job as the primary lead manager of it. So not everyone in the firm works on every project, um, but a project might have more than one person working on it at any one time. However, we are pretty collaborative with our opinions. (laughs) I think when someone needs help, we will ask and everybody will definitely voice it (laughs) as a team effort. (laughs) So do you do you just jump in from day one and you're assigned a project and you like basically are the manager of that project? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically we try to assign someone uh to it. I that doesn't mean that they are necessarily responsible for the 
getting the codes right and the, I don't know, everything about it. It just means that they're the one who's supposed to track the to-do list and keep track of, of all of the kind of necessary deadlines and things like that. But for the most part, they do run the projects. Yeah, I that's the code thing. <laughs> I feel like Tracy has her hand and nothing gets sent without like Tracy's approval. And I feel like Mackenzie and Tracy handle all of the big scary stuff first, <laughs> um, like codes and just figuring out what we can and can't do. And then everybody yeah, kind of has their project that they get through. I think when I first started as like a junior staff, I was bounced around helping with different tasks on every project. But I think within like the last, what, six months, I've been kind of transitioning to figuring out how to manage a project by myself, which has been interesting. But it's, yeah, what Tracy has mentioned, a lot of um, mostly communicating with the clients, making sure we're on track and checking in with Tracy and just being like, hey, where do we need to go with this? What do you need? Et cetera, et cetera. So... I think it's just really interesting to hear about how people within your firm grow. It it sounds like a really interesting hands-on and like um, comfortable way to get really um, independent with learning about this complex process of design through construction and taking a project from the beginning to the end. And, And clearly it sounds like you're really tuned into mentoring your employees and um, having them grow. It, yeah, very Jeez. much so. <laughs> like I said, I, the only firm I've worked for was for Ray Cappy, and he was incredibly respectful, and um, he gave me a lot of leeway and taught me an incredible amount, but he also, I guess I can't get past the notion of respect, and I had friends at the time who were fresh out of school and they were working for firms where they were not treated with respect and uh, everything was kind of kept very tight and away from them and lots of locked drawers and you can't get here and you can't have access to this and you're just down at this level and and you only get to do this and know this little bit. And um, that was so foreign to how I was being trained or taught. And so it was natural for me to, carry that forward, I think. And um, with the respect comes responsibility, though I do expect people to, to step up and, um, and perform. And uh, if they are doing so, then there is, I think, a, a lot of room to grow. I like to, I would like to grow everyone up into a responsible, <laughs> talented, functioning architect. Um, and sadly, they often, they grow and then they leave. But that's, <laughs> good. that's, a, that's a good part of it, too. That's natural, and, and they should. Um, it's always hard as an employer when um, people that you've worked with and uh, grown to care about and, and uh, rely on uh, spread their wings and off they go. Um, but, again, it's, that's actually lovely, too. And then you get to see them. Yeah. <laughs> excel and and grow into really amazing designers themselves so I've had to get comfortable with it 
That seems like a really healthy attitude. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do? You got to just give them all the tools they need and know that that's a contribution too. Yeah. Well, before we um, run out of time, I did want to ask about like design philosophy because uh, you, you know, worked with one of the great LA designers, Ray Cappy. And I was just curious to hear, you know, whether that influenced how you approach design or like, did you blend it with uh, your own sensibility that you came with, you know, from um, architecture school or your own influences? I was incredibly lucky to work for Ray because um, his design sensibility resonated so incredibly strongly with me that given my druthers, I would love to follow as closely in his footsteps as I could. Having said that, it can be a challenge these days to design houses the way that Ray did, which are so dependent on glass and uh, incredibly beautiful handcrafted details. And I have rarely been fortunate enough to have a project that could be realized in a similar way. So I must admit, I struggle all the time to reconcile this tendency I have (laughs) and love that I have for um, the kind of architecture that Ray practiced with the realities of what can be built today. So My sensibility is very much, I would say, one of an expressed structure, a delight in the honesty of materials, an understanding of how a building goes together, a rationality, a lyricism that comes from that play of light and shadow across textures and patterns. And then I don't often get to indulge in all of that, (laughs) although I'm trying to find ways to push more and more into that realm. Um, But I am often caught short by expecting and wanting a level of detail and craft that doesn't always get realized in the finished product It's a constant battle, and I'm always looking for opportunities to reassess my own inclinations (laughs) and to look for other ways to maybe achieve similar effects. Um, So I will say that I guess I I am still learning about that as well, still growing and still testing and changing and trying to find a resolution. I know. I feel like recently this past week we had been discussing – how to push for these projects that we all feel deeply about, I guess, in a way. I don't know. Um, But I feel like materials was a big one that we were discussing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Especially with, she just did a climate change symposium. So we've been discussing how to incorporate sustainable materials and how that fits in and how do you get clients to buy off on that or developers and... Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting the discussion about low carbon building materials and how 
ideally we would have hundreds of choices. And right now we have just a few. And how do we as architects impact that market? Uh, For us to impact it, we have to specify it. We have to find them, specify them, get them used. And that means convincing, as Abby says, uh, clients and, and contractors to to care about it. <laughs> yeah, to go in that direction. And, yeah. and of course, it's hard because uh, you're always fighting the constraint of the budget, too, where it's an ongoing push. I mean, we've always tried yeah. to <laughs> sustainable materials where we could, but I think um, recognizing that the biggest problem materials are concrete steel and concrete block and aluminum, and, and it's so hard. Those are such foundational materials, and it's not always easy to find alternates to those. So that's where we're heading. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally, I 100% am with you there where I felt like I was really um, attracted to architecture because of an impact that that could be made through sustainability. And um, it's actually kind of shocking to me how little that factors in for homeowners, even homeowners who say that they're very interested in sustainability at the beginning do not end up with um, selections that are the most sustainable. Um, And it's always kind of frustrating. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it is. And again, often it is the budget uh, issue. When the the crunch comes, you know, of course they want to build a house and you know, the goal for all of us is to continue to encourage, incentivize, force where necessary, um, the innovation and materials. And to a certain degree, I think we've been lucky to live in California because we have a California Green Building Code and a state energy code that are forcing everyone, whether they want to or not, in certain directions. And uh, that has, I think, allowed to a certain degree uh architects, well, at least me, for a few years to sit back and think, okay, I don't have to push so hard because the state is doing it for me. But uh, really, it, it's going to take a concerted effort on all our parts to get where we need to get in the next nine years. They're now saying 2030 is supposed to be the new 2050, and we got to make significant progress by then. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I feel would be a good tipping point for homeowners would be just being able to see more examples of sustainable materials in use because a lot of the problem too has been that I feel like my clients don't want what they haven't seen before. Yeah. I feel like people are skeptical in a way or they don't like change because Tracy was showing us, I think, CMU blocks that are made out of, was it hempcrete or something? Even myself, I was like, how does that work? Like almost like the skepticism. And I can imagine people and contractors and clients, they're like, we don't want the new thing because what if that goes wrong? So yeah, there do need to be like these case studies, I guess, to show people that this is possible and affordable. And there's a... I think there's a really interesting tightrope to be walked right now between regulation and innovation. And uh, of course, none of us want to propose a material, a new, great, innovative, fascinating, (laughs) sexy new material and have it fail in the first year or two in the building. Um, So we want to make sure that the materials are tested. But at the same time, 
uh, I think regulations can stand in the way of innovation. And so I don't have the answer to this, but I, I do know that we are going to have to figure a way to, through this hurdle, where we're still incentivizing innovation and these new materials. And uh, at the same time, we can feel somewhat confident in their use. Earlier, we were planning our next blog, I guess, for the website, and we've been trying to cover more sustainable topics. And one thing I feel like clients and even myself aren't educated on are how buildings perform and how they conserve energy, like that half of it, and then the other half of what it's actually made out of and how long it'll last or if it's biodegradable in a way. Um, And... I don't know. It's just interesting, I guess, because um, there's two paths. And I think it's easier to push clients one way, which would be like a smart thermostat or something along those lines, better insulation. I don't know. I know Tracy tries to push those things a little bit. Yeah. Then, of course, <laughs> we want glass. So, yeah, everybody <laughs> wants giant windows. <laughs> We're always fighting that energy. Uh, struggle. Yeah. Right. And it's going to get just, I mean, it already has gotten harder this year, but it's going to keep getting harder. It is. To hit those targets with a lot of glass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need to think differently about, about how we relate interior to exterior, the famous California indoor outdoor living, which I love. Well, at least overhangs is something we can control. <laughs> we can indeed. Uh, yes, we can. We can do all kinds of things by shaping our buildings and orienting them and playing with the materials, as you said, the overhangs. Uh, so all is not lost, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a matter of innovation, right? And design. Yeah. And kudos to you guys for like, you know, really caring about the sustainability aspect and just trying to push it more through your blog and educate clients that way. I think that's really, that's really great. Thank you. Yeah. I think that was our goal to educate clients in a sensible way that everybody can understand it. And hopefully we can push them to make better buildings, I guess, that are better for the environment. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking with me and spending all this time with me today. Really appreciate learning so much more about how you run your business and all of your um, community involvement and everything that goes into who you are and being a involved architect in your, in your city. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Audrey. I really appreciate um, your interest and having this time to chat. Uh, I'm also really appreciate what it is you're doing with this podcast. I think this is incredible to, for you to be interviewing women in architecture. And I know there are more women than ever before now in the profession, but that we are still underrepresented. And so I very much appreciate the chance, now that I know about your podcast, to (laughs) listen to all of these voices and hear all these stories. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tracy Stone and Abby Naylor. You can find out more about them at tracystonearchitect.com or visit evartscollective.com to watch YouTube videos of the virtual Frogtown Art Walk. If you know someone who you'd love featured on this show, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find me at xx-la.com or at xxlapodcast on social media. 
And stay tuned. Our next guest will be Karen Lodgren from Om Givening. Thanks for listening.